said multiple times today that she believes you and the other women mentioned in this report. What does that mean to you? Today was so validating and really emotional, and I feel vindicated. Um, it's, it's been a long day, but I'm, I'm proud to be a New Yorker right now. Charlotte, the governor said today that he never touched anyone inappropriately and never made sexual advances. What do you make of the governor's denial? The governor's denial is actually irrelevant. We have a report, a set of facts, and we have New Yorkers who know we need to do something about it. If the governor is not willing to hold himself accountable to the facts, then we have a responsibility to call on Assembly Speaker Carl Heastie to start impeachment. He said today that it was your complaint that bothered him the most. He mentioned you by name. Did you listen to him today? I did listen to him. And what did you think? I think he still thinks that victim blaming is an effective uh, means to negate the facts, but I think it's just more embarrassing for him than it is actually effective. The governor admitted that he asked you questions that he doesn't normally ask people because you told him you're a survivor of sexual assault. Do you think he's gaslighting you? Absolutely. He's trying to justify himself by making me out to be someone who can't tell the difference between sexual harassment and mentorship. We have a report. We have the facts. The governor broke federal and state law when he sexually harassed me and current and former staffers. And if he's not willing to step down, then we have a responsibility to uh, act and impeach him. He sexually harassed me. I am not confused. It is not confusing. I am living in reality, and it's sad to see that he's not. He said that he was trying to help you work through a difficult time. At any point, did that seem like that was his intention? No. His intention was trying to sleep with me. He was trying to sleep with me, and that was actually pretty clear from the report today that he was sexually harassing me. He was not acting as a mentor. Governor Cuomo did at one point say he was wrong in what he did, but then he said that you and your lawyer have ascribed motives that he never had and that you heard things that he just didn't say. Did you misinterpret the governor? I didn't, and it's actually interesting because his own senior aides took notes, contemporaneous notes, that actually backed up my allegations. The report detailed your meticulous note-taking and corroborating at the time when Governor Cuomo did some of these things to you. Yeah, I, um, I consider myself really lucky to be surrounded by friends and family that saw me through that whole period of time from the moment I stepped into that office to start my first day of work up until today. Um, it, this was not happening in a nutshell. This is not he said, she said. This is um, I was taking contemporaneous notes. I was sharing all of these events with my friends and family. And that's why these are facts. And, you know, his statement today was just, first of all, propaganda. And it's irrelevant. Today, we did hear the governor address you directly and said he's truly and deeply sorry. Do you accept his apology? I don't. I actually don't want it or need it. And it's irrelevant. His propaganda is uh, simply that. The governor today blamed generational or cultural perspectives for the way he made jokes and the comments that he makes. Was what the governor did a generational misunderstanding? Publicly, he would rather play dumb. Privately, he knows that he sexually harassed staffers. And I think it's easier to explain his behavior publicly by saying there was some misunderstanding. And then also using my background as a survivor of sexual violence uh, to say that, you know, you clearly misinterpreted. In fact, that's not the case. And what did you make of the report finding the lack of reporting allegations of harassment in a due manner? It's not surprising because, you know, these are the people that were operating when I came forward and nothing came of my report in the moment. So, you know, the findings themselves weren't necessarily surprising, but it's actually deeply devastating. And it sends a message to New Yorkers that there are some people who are simply above the law, and the governor is not above the law. Actually, he signed the law, and uh, he should be held accountable for breaking it.
there is now a criminal investigation into another allegation that the governor reached under an aide's blouse in his home office. Are you personally aware of that incident? I was not until the media uh, reported it, but it's devastating. And these are women that I worked closely with when I was working in his office. And it just speaks to the failure to take seriously my allegations because had someone followed this up with an investigation and had taken my report and done anything at all with it as they were legally required to do, perhaps that incident wouldn't have happened at all. And that's the reason why the laws are the laws. In addition to this investigation that found that the governor sexually harassed multiple women, they also found that... Um, that the governor and his aides created a toxic work environment that enabled sexual harassment. Is that consistent with what you experienced? It's extremely consistent. I think the environment of fear, the environment of humiliation, the idea that at any moment you feel like you could either lose your job or get screamed at or, you know, it, it was traumatic on its own. So when the most powerful person in the office and also the most powerful person in the state acts inappropriately, you think, why would anyone take that seriously or think that I deserve any respect in this office? The governor said today that he accepts responsibility and that he's making changes. Do you believe him? Accepting responsibility means stepping down. And not only is he not stepping down, but he's outright denying the things that he did. So I don't believe him, and I don't want an apology. It's not necessary. It's fake. And his propaganda video was not only uncomfortable and inappropriate, but downright weird and unnecessary because we don't need to know from him his thoughts on this. We have the facts. We have the facts, and we can, you know, we can wait for him to resign, and he's not going to do it, or we can call Carl Heasty, uh, the Speaker of the Assembly, and just say... Let's do the obvious thing and impeach him. Let's impeach the governor. Why do you call it a, a propaganda video? Because it's not about anything other than protecting him and his office. It is not protecting New York. He is not speaking for New Yorkers. He is not trying to do anything other than maintain the power that he has currently. If he cared about New York State, he would step down. Because at this point, it's an embarrassment to all of us. He's embarrassing. And then finally... Um, what do you think is the effect of the governor's behavior, both in the past and then by the comments that he made today? He is normalizing not only victim blaming, but sexual harassment. He is saying that women come forward with their stories and we don't need to take it seriously. You actually think his comments are dangerous? I think his comments are dangerous. I think it sends a message to New Yorkers that sexual harassment is not important, that it is not dangerous. It is. It is important, and it's also just plain illegal. Mm -hmm. You've heard a number of complaints brought against me. I called for an independent review, and I said at the beginning I would let the process unfold. I didn't want anyone to say that I interfered. I said I would hold my tongue, and I have, making only limited comments. It has been a hard and a painful period for me and my family, especially as others feed ugly stories to the press. But I cooperated with the review, and I can now finally share the truth. My attorney, who is a non-political former federal prosecutor, has done a response to each allegation, and the facts are much different than what has been portrayed. That document is available on my website. If you are interested, please take the time to read the facts and decide for yourself. First, I want you to know directly from me that I never touched anyone inappropriately or made inappropriate sexual advances. I am 63 years old. I've lived my entire adult life in public that is just not who I am, and that's not who I have ever been. There is one complaint that has been made that bothered me most. 
That was a complaint made by a young woman, Charlotte Bennett, who worked in my office. And it's important to me that you fully understand the situation. Charlotte worked in my office last year as an assistant. She was smart, talented, and eager to learn. She identified herself to me as a survivor of sexual assault. She said that she came to work in my administration because of all the progress we had made in fighting sexual assault. She talked about the personal trauma that she endured and how she was handling it. I could see how it had affected her. I could see her pain. People now ask me, why was I even talking to this young woman if I knew she was dealing with such issues? Why did I even engage with her? That is the obvious and fair question, and one I have thought a lot about. The truth is that her story resonated deeply with me. I had heard the same story before, with the same ugliness, the same injustice, the same damage. Not only had I heard the story before, I had lived with the story before. My own family member is a survivor of sexual assault in high school. I have watched her live and suffer with the trauma. I would do anything to make it go away for her. But it never really goes away. I spent countless days and nights working through these issues with her and therapists and counselors. I'm governor of the state of New York, but I felt powerless to help and felt that I had failed her. I couldn't take the pain away. I still can't. And this young woman brought it all back. She's about the same age. I thought I had learned a lot about the issue from my family's experience. I thought I could help her work through a difficult time. I did ask her questions I don't normally ask people. I did ask her how she was doing and how she was feeling. And I did ask questions to try to see if she had positive supportive dating relationships. I know too well the manifestations of sexual assault trauma and the damage that it can do in the aftermath. I was trying to make sure she was working her way through it the best she could. I thought I had learned enough and had enough personal experience to help her. But I was wrong. I have heard Charlotte and her lawyer, and I understand what they are saying. But they read into comments that I made and draw inferences that I never meant. They ascribe motives I never had. And simply put, they heard things that I just didn't say. Charlotte, I want you to know that I am truly and deeply sorry. I brought my personal experience into the workplace, and I shouldn't have done that. I was trying to help. Obviously, I didn't. I am even more sorry that I further complicated the situation. My goal was the exact opposite. I wish nothing but good for you and for all survivors of sexual assault. There is another complaint I want to address from a woman in my office who said that I groped her in my home office. Let me be clear, that never happened. She wants anonymity, and I respect that. So I am limited of what I can say. But her lawyer has suggested that she will file a legal claim for damages. That will be decided in a court of law. Trial by newspaper or biased reviews are not the way to find the facts in this matter. I welcome the opportunity for a full and fair review before a judge and a jury, because this just did not happen. Other complainants raised against me questions 
that have sought to unfairly characterize and weaponize everyday interactions that I've had with any number of New Yorkers. The New York Times published a front page picture of me touching a woman's face at a wedding and then kissing her on the cheek. That is not front page news. I've been making the same gesture in public all my life. I actually learned it from my mother and from my father. It is meant to convey warmth, nothing more. Indeed, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of photos of me using the exact same gesture. I do it with everyone black and white, young and old, straight and LGBTQ, powerful people. I was drowning in the of them. I discovered so why. Lower interest rate, uh, my principal's going down. If you're going to refinance your student loans, you have to check out so why. strangers, people who I meet on the street. After the event, the woman told the press that she took offense at the gesture. And for that, I apologized. Another woman stated that I kissed her on the forehead at our Christmas party and that I said, ciao, Bella. Now, I don't remember doing it, but I'm sure that I did. I do kiss people on the forehead. I do kiss people on the cheek. I do kiss people on the hand. I do embrace people. I do hug people, men and women. I do on occasion say, ciao, Bella. On occasion, I do slip and say, sweetheart, or darling, or honey. I do banter with people. I do tell jokes, some better than others. I am the same person in public as I am in private. You have seen me do it on TV through all my briefings and for 40 years before that. I try to put people at ease. I try to make them smile. I try to connect with them. And I try to show my appreciation and my friendship. I now understand that there are generational or cultural perspectives that, frankly, I hadn't fully appreciated. And I have learned from this. Now, the state already has an advanced sexual harassment training program for all employees, including me. But I want New York State government to be a model of office behavior. And I have brought in an expert to design a new sexual harassment policy and procedures and to train the whole team, myself included. I accept responsibility, and we are making changes. Other complaints relate to the work environment. Now, I have always said my office is a demanding place to work and that it is not for everyone. We work really, really hard. My office is no typical nine-to-five government office, and I don't want it to be. The stakes we deal with are very high, sometimes even life and death. We have to get the job done. I promised you that I would, and I will. But now, a number of complaints target female managers, which smacks to me of a double standard. First, when have you ever seen male managers maligned and villainized for working long hours or holding people accountable or for being tough? A strong male manager is respected and rewarded, but a strong female manager is ridiculed and stereotyped. It is
is a double standard. It is sexist, and it must be changed. Also, remember where we are. Today, we are living in a superheated, if not toxic, political environment. That shouldn't be lost on anyone. Politics and bias are interwoven throughout every aspect of this situation. One would be naive to think otherwise. And New Yorkers are not naive. I understand these dynamics. My father used to say, God rest his soul, that politics is an ugly business. As usual, he was right. But for my father and for me, it's worth it. Because despite it all, at the end of the day, we get good things done for people. And that is what really matters. And for those who are using this moment to score political points or seek publicity or personal gain, I say they actually discredit the legitimate sexual harassment victims that the law was designed to protect. My last point is this. I say to my daughters all the time that as complicated as life gets is as simple as life is. My job is not about me. My job is about you. What matters to me at the end of the day is getting the most done I can for you. And that is what I do every day. And I will not be distracted from that job. We have a lot to do. We still have to manage the COVID beast. It is not dead yet. It's not over. We then have to reopen and reimagine our state because our future is going to be what we make it. I know we can do these things because I know the strength and the character of New Yorkers. Look at the progress we made on COVID. It is amazing. We went from the highest infection rate in the country to one of the lowest infection rates in the country. Nobody thought that we could do it, but New Yorkers did it. That shows that there's nothing that we can't do when we work together. Together, together as one, as one community, as one family, as New Yorkers, we will. attorneys who were designated as special deputies to the Attorney General's office to announce the findings of their investigation into allegations of sexual harassment made against Governor Andrew Cuomo. I'll make a brief statement, statement and then turn it over to uh, Ms. Clark and to Mr. Kim, who will delve into the investigation's findings. The independent investigation has concluded that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women, and in doing so, violated federal and state law. Specifically, the investigation found that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed current and former New York State employees by engaging in unwelcome and non-consensual touching and making numerous offensive comments of a suggestive and sexual nature that created a hostile work environment for women. The investigators independently corroborated and substantiated these facts through interviews and evidence, including contemporaneous notes and communications. This evidence will be made available to the public along with the report. This investigation was started after a number of women publicly alleged that they had been sexually harassed by Governor Cuomo. And on March 1st of this year, the governor's office made a referral to my office pursuant to State Executive Law 63-8 regarding these allegations. 
Executive Law Section 6338 permits the New York Attorney General's Office with the approval of the governor or when directed by the governor to inquire into matters concerning the public peace, the public safety, and public justice. This referral issued by the governor enabled my office to appoint independent outside investigators to look into these allegations. And on March 8, 2021, Ann Clark and June Kim, they were officially deputized as special deputies. Ms. Clark and Mr. Kim and their respective firms were chosen to lead this investigation because of their decades of work at the highest levels, their deep expertise on matters in question, and their careers fighting to uphold the rule of law. Ann Clark is a partner at Vladnik, Raskin, and Clark PC, where she focuses on employment law issues on behalf of employees at the trial and appellate levels. And during her more than 30-year career, Ms. Clark has represented clients in a variety of employment, sexual harassment, and other discrimination cases in the private sector, in education, and in government. She also has deep experience with retaliation, whistleblower, breach of contract, and compensation and benefits cases. June Kim is a partner at Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen, and Hamilton LLP. And for more than two decades, he has worked at the highest levels of government and in private practice. From March 2017 to January 2018, he served as the acting United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York. As the most senior federal law enforcement officer in the district, he oversaw all criminal and civil litigation conducted on behalf of the United States. Before becoming acting United States Attorney, Mr. Kim served in various leadership positions in the office, including Deputy United States Attorney, Chief of the Criminal Division, and Chief Counsel to the United States Attorney. Ms. Clark and Mr. Kim are experienced, credible, and deeply respected professionals. And together, they ensure that this investigation was both independent over the course of the five-month investigation, the investigators spoke to 179 individuals, including complainants, current and former members of the executive chamber, state troopers, additional state employees, and others who interacted regularly with the governor. In addition, they reviewed more than 74,000 pieces of evidence, including documents, emails, texts, audio files, and pictures. These interviews and pieces of evidence reveal a deeply disturbing yet clear picture. Governor Cuomo sexually harassed current and former state employees in violation of both federal and state laws. The Independence investigation found that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women, many of whom were young women, by engaging in unwanted groping, kisses, hugging, and by making inappropriate comments. Further, the governor and his senior team took actions to retaliate against at least one former employee for coming forward with her story, her truth. Governor Cuomo's administration fostered a toxic workplace that enabled harassment and created a hostile work environment where staffers did not feel comfortable coming forward with complaints about sexual harassment due to a climate of fear and given the power dynamics. The investigators found that Governor Cuomo's actions and those of the exec executive chamber violated multiple state and federal laws as well as the executive chamber's own written policies. This investigation has revealed conduct that corrodes the very fabric and character of our state government and shines light on injustice that can be present 
at the highest levels of government. But none of this, none of this would have been illuminated if not for the heroic women who came forward. And I am inspired by all the brave women who came forward. But more importantly, I believe them. And I thank them for their bravery. And I thank the independent investigators for their professionalism, despite the attacks, and for their dogged determination that brought us to the truth. And now we will hear from June Kim and Ann Clark, who will walk us through the report and their findings. General James. Good morning. My name is June Kim, and along with my colleague, Ann Clark, we have led the teams at our two we have led our teams at our two law firms in conducting the investigation into allegations of sexual harassment by Governor Cuomo. We have now completed our investigation and have made our findings and reached our conclusions. They're set forth in a detailed report issued today. As set forth in the report, we find that the governor, on numerous occasions, engaged in conduct that constitutes unlawful sex-based harassment. Specifically, we find that the governor sexually harassed a number of current and former New York State employees. He did so by, among other things, engaging in unwelcome and non-consensual touching, and also repeatedly making comments of a sexualized or gender-based nature. Our investigation revealed that these were not isolated incidents. They were part of a pattern. The governor's pattern of sexually harassing behavior was not limited to members of his own staff, but extended to other state employees, including a state trooper who served on his protective detail. There are 11 complainants whose allegations are set forth in great detail in the report. Nine of them are or were employed by the state of New York or a state-affiliated entity. The complainants interacted with the governor under different circumstances. For example, some of them met with him regularly as an executive assistant or as members of his staff, or as I said, as a trooper on his protective detail, while others only met him once. But all of them experienced harassing conduct from the governor. Some suffered through unwanted touching and grabbing of their most intimate body parts. Others suffered through repeated offensive, sexually suggestive, or gender-based comments. A number of them endured both. None of them welcomed it, and all of them found it disturbing, humiliating, uncomfortable, and inappropriate. And now we find that it was unlawful sex-based harassment. Our investigation has also found that the executive chamber responded to allegations of sexual harassment in ways that violated their own internal policies and also constituted unlawful retaliation with respect to one of the complainants. And finally, based on our investigation, we concluded that the executive chamber's workplace culture one rife with bullying, fear, and intimidation on the one hand, while normalizing frequent flirtations and gender-based comments by the governor on the other, created the conditions that allowed the sexual harassment and retaliation to occur 
and to persist. As the Attorney General has said, we reached these findings and conclusions after a thorough and independent investigation. We were allowed to and did follow the facts without fear, without favor. As you will see in the report, our findings are supported by extensive evidence. That includes interviews and testimony from 179 witnesses and review of tens of thousands of documents. I'll now turn it over to my colleague, Ann Clark, to walk through some of the specifics related to the sexual harassment, the policy violations, and the retaliation. We find that the governor on many occasions engaged in sex-based harassing conduct and conversations. The most serious was the governor's unwelcome physical contact with women, including touching intimate body parts. He engaged in this conduct with state employees, including those who didn't work in the executive chamber, as well as non-employees. One current employee who we identify as executive assistant number one endured repeated physical violations. On November 16, 2020, in the executive mansion, the governor hugged executive assistant number one and reached under her blouse to grab her breast. This was the culmination of a pattern of inappropriate sexual conduct, including numerous close and intimate hugs where the governor held her so closely that her breasts were pressed against his body, and he sometimes ran his hands up and down his her back while he did so. There were also several occasions on which the governor grabbed her butt. Executive assistant number one had vowed that she was going to take these violations, as she put it, to the grave. She was terrified that if she spoke out, she would lose her job. But she broke down in front of colleagues when she heard the governor on March 3, 2021, in his press conference, claim that he had never touched anyone inappropriately. She then confided in her coworkers who saw her break down as to what had happened, and they were the ones that reported the conduct to attorneys in the executive chamber. The governor also several times inappropriately touched a state trooper assigned to the unit to protect the governor. In an elevator, while standing behind the trooper, he ran his finger from her neck down her spine and said, hey you. Another time, she was standing holding the door open for the governor. As he passed, he took his open hand and ran it across her stomach from her belly button to where she, the hip where she keeps her gun. She told us that she felt completely violated to have the governor touch her, as she put it, between her chest and her privates. The governor also inappropriately touched women who were attending work-related events at which the governor made remarks. At one event in September 2019, while having his picture taken with an employee of a state entity, the governor grabbed this young woman's butt. At another event in May of 2017, the governor pressed and ran his fingers across the chest of a woman while reading the name of her company, whose logo was on her chest. The governor also engaged in a widespread pattern of subjecting women to unwanted hugs and kisses and touching them in ways that made them uncomfortable. Conduct that is not just old-fashioned, affectionate behavior, as he and some of his staff members would have it, but unlawful sex-based harassment. In addition to the physical conduct, our investigation found that the governor regularly made comments to staff members and state employees that were offensive and gender-based. For example, the governor crossed the line many times when speaking with Charlotte Bennett, a briefer and executive assistant, uh, particularly in spring of 2020. When she confided in the governor that she had been sexually assaulted in college, he asked her for the details of her assault. When talking about potential girlfriends, he said he thought he could date women as young as 22, knowing that Ms. Bennett was 25 at the time. He asked her whether she had ever been with older men. He told her that he was lonely and wanted to be touched. He asked her if she was monogamous and what she thought about monogamy. He speculated on how her history as a sexual assault survivor might affect her romantic life. He told her that she looked like Daisy Duke. He suggested that she get a tattoo she was contemplating on her butt and asked her if she had any piercings anywhere other than her ears. 
Miss Bennett texted to a friend on the day where many of these comments were made that she was upset and confused and that she was shaking. Another example is the governor's comments to the state trooper, the same trooper he touched on the stomach and back. After the governor had become single, he asked the trooper how old she was. When she responded that she was in her late 20s, he said, that's too old for him. He then asked her how much of an age difference he thought he could have between him and the girlfriend and have the public still accept it. She suggested it might be a good idea to stick with women at least as old as your daughters. She then tried to deflect the conversation by asking the governor what he was looking for in a girlfriend. He responded that he was looking for somebody who could handle pain. Another time, when the governor found out that the trooper was engaged, he asked her why she'd want to get married, because, among other things, your sex drive goes down. As detailed in the report, employees recounted a pattern of similarly offensive comments and conversations, such as the governor repeatedly asking executive assistant number one whether she would cheat on her husband, saying to her, if you were single, the things I would do to you telling her that she looked great for her age, which was early 30s, and for a mother, calling her and coworker Alyssa McGrath mingle mamas, comparing Lindsay Boylan to a more attractive version of one of his ex-girlfriends and to actresses. Women also described to us having the governor seek them out, stare intently at them, look them up and down, or gaze at their chest or butt. In some, the governor routinely interacted with women in ways that focused on their gender, sometimes in explicitly sexualized manner, in ways that women found deeply humiliating and offensive. Both federal and state law prohibit gender-based harassment in the workplace. In fact, the governor himself, in August of 2019, uh, passed a law that changed, eliminated in New York State the requirement that harassing conduct needed to be severe or pervasive. In New York, a woman need only show that she was treated less well, at least in part, because of her gender. The governor's conduct detailed in the report clearly meets and far exceeds this standard. We also find that the executive chamber failed to follow its own harassment policies and procedures, ones that on paper are consistent with New York legal requirements. This was exemplified by the handling of Charlotte Bennett's complaint. In June of 2020, Ms. Bennett told the governor's chief of staff about recent conversations of a sexual nature that were so uncomfortable that she no longer wanted to interact with the governor. The chief of staff relayed Ms. Bennett's complaints to others in the governor's inner circle and transferred Ms. Bennett within days. Two weeks later, the chief of staff and a special counsel spoke with Ms. Bennett, who detailed interactions with the governor that went back to May of 2019. The chief of staff and special counsel both found Ms. Bennett to be credible. The chief of staff consulted with the special counsel and with Melissa DeRosa, the secretary to the governor, and they decided they did not need to report this to the governor's office of employee relations, GOER, or conduct any meaningful investigation. They simply moved Ms. Bennett and instituted a policy of not having a junior staffer be alone with the governor, and even that, they said, was to protect the governor. That response, we find, was a violation of the executive chamber's harassment policy, which clearly requires that all possible harassment be reported to Goer and investigated. Now, six months later, in December of 2020, when Lindsay Boylan tweeted that she had been sexually harassed by the governor, the executive chamber once again failed to report the issue to Goer. Although Mr. Rosa, the special counsel, and certain other advisors knew about the allegations that Charlotte Bennett had made that the special counsel had found credible. No one treated Ms. Boylan's allegations seriously other than as a threat to the governor. Rather than any effort to determine if the governor had engaged in a pattern of sexually harassing behavior, a team of senior staffers, former staffers, and outside confidants with no official title or role mobilized to attack and try to neutralize Ms. Boylan by sharing disparaging information with the press. Within hours of Ms. Boylan's December 13, 2020 tweet alleging sexual harassment, key members of the governor's inner circle had obtained confidential memos, ones that were stamped attorney-client privilege. They were primarily about an interaction between Ms. Boylan and an assistant. 
They then redacted the names of individuals other than Ms. Boylan and started sending the memos to reporters. There was also a proposed letter or op-ed drafted by the governor that went through several drafts. The letter attacked Ms. Boylan for alleged conduct at work, for alleged conduct with men other than the governor, as well as postulating various political conspiracies, including that Ms. Boylan was funded by far-right Republicans and supporters of Donald Trump. Although the letter was never published, it was sent or read to a variety of people outside the executive chamber, either to get their advice or ask them to sign their names to it, and shared ultimately with at least one member of the press. The governor was arguing for the release of that letter. He was finally convinced to abandon it by a number of people who thought the letter was a bad idea, in part because what was in the letter couldn't be substantiated and because they thought that victim shaming would be bad as a strategy. Both federal and state law prohibit an employer from taking any action that would dissuade a reasonable employee or former employee from making or supporting a charge of discrimination. Under that standard, the confidential release of internal records to the press and the dissemination of the letter disparaging Ms. Boylan constituted unlawful retaliation. I will now turn it back to Mr. Kim to say a few words about our findings with respect to the workplace culture within the executive chamber. Thank you, Ms. Clark. As set forth in our report, we find that the culture within the executive chamber contributed to the conditions that allowed the governor's sexually harassing conduct to occur and to persist. The culture also informed the way in which the executive chamber responded to allegations of sexual harassment, as Ms. Clark has described, through violations of their own policies and through unlawful retaliation. But what was the culture? Words that witnesses have used repeatedly to describe it include toxic, hostile, abusive. Others use words like fear, intimidation, bullying, vindictive. As one senior staffer stated bluntly, as the sexual harassment allegations became public in March of this year in text exchanges uh, with others, with another in the executive, in the administration, I quote, hopefully, when this is all done, people will realize the culture, even outside of the sexual harassment stuff, is not something you can get away with. You can't berate and terrify people 24-7, close quote. It was a culture where you could not say no to the governor. And if, you, and if you upset him or his, him or his senior staff, you'll be written off, cast aside, or worse. But at the same time, the witnesses described a culture that normalized and overlooked everyday flirtations, physical intimacy, and inappropriate comments by the governor. One senior staffer testified that at, uh, at a work event, she sat on the governor's lap. Another staffer said she recalled uh, kissing the governor on the lips. The governor testified that those things may have happened with senior staffers. One complainant described her interactions with the governor by saying they were, quote, strange and uncomfortable. But it was like the twilight zone. The typical rules did not apply. You should just view it as a compliment if the governor finds you aesthetically pleasing enough. Close quote. The coexistence in the executive chamber, the executive chamber's culture of fear and flirtation, intimidation and intimacy, abuse and affection created a work environment ripe for harassment. As another complainant testified, and I quote, what makes it so hard to describe every single inappropriate incident is the culture of the place. On the one hand, he makes all this inappropriate and creepy behavior normal and like you should not complain. On the other hand, you see people getting punished and screamed at if you do anything 
where you disagree with him or his top aides. I really just wanted to go to work and be recognized for my work and nothing else. Close quote. Charlotte Bennett, complainant, as Clark mentioned, who was transferred after she reported inappropriate comments by the governor to senior staff, summarized her experience in a text message as follows. Quote, the verbal abuse, intimidation, and living in constant fear were all horribly toxic, dehumanizing, and traumatizing. And then he came on to me. I was scared to imagine what would happen if I rejected him. So I disappeared instead. My time in public service ended because he was bored and lonely. It still breaks my heart. It's a quote from a text that Ms. Bennett wrote. The culture, this culture made it all the more difficult, if not impossible, for complainants to report the harassment from which they were suffering, particularly when the harasser was the governor of the state of New York. But one by one, one courageous woman after another stepped forward. They stepped forward to say, enough is enough. They came forward in our investigation to tell us about their experiences, the harassment they suffered at the hands of the governor. In our report, we've used their words. And their words, so long silenced, speak loudly for themselves. These brave women stepped forward to speak truth to power. And in doing so, they expressed faith in the belief that although the governor may be powerful, the truth is even more so. This is what lies at the heart of our investigation and the findings in our report. We will now take questions, and the questioning will be directed by Delaney Kentner. understanding that for the young woman whose uh, breast was groped that the Albany Police Department already has a report about that. Um, as for anything else, as uh, the Attorney General stated, uh, all the information is fully documented in the report and any prosecutors or police departments can look at the evidence and determine if they want to take further action. Chambers, um, policy. What, what kind of, uh, 
it's our understanding that the report was made by the executive chamber. Our last question is from Rebecca Lewis from city and state. Rebecca, your line is open. Hi, Attorney General. Um, I just wanted uh, to ask, you know, with this report out now, you said that you're not going to speculate on whether the governor is fit to serve or if he should run again. What do you want the public to take away from this report? That these 11 women were in a hostile and toxic work environment and that we should believe women and that what we have an obligation and a duty to do is to protect women in their workplace. And what this investigation revealed was a disturbing pattern of conduct by the governor of the great state of New York. And those who basically did not put in place any protocols or procedures to protect these young women who believed in public service. I believe women, and I believe these 11 women. I thank you all for being here this morning. sheriff's office investigating. She's one of the 11 alleged victims identified in the state investigation, which concluded that the governor sexually harassed multiple women, including one of his own staff members. The accuser who filed the complaint worked as Governor Cuomo's executive assistant. She claims he reached under her blouse and groped her breasts in his home office at the governor's mansion last November. Today, Governor Cuomo's lawyers rejected that bombshell accusation and said the executive assistant's story doesn't add up. The governor has denied harassing, making unwanted sexual advances, or inappropriately touching anybody. Here's NBC's Tom Winter. Jeff, good evening. The Albany County Sheriff's Office becoming yet another law enforcement agency looking at Governor Cuomo. Earlier this week, five district attorney's offices said that they were going to look into the recent attorney general's office report about the governor and his sexual harassment. And today, a woman who has not identified herself publicly but is known in that report is executive assistant number one, filed a criminal complaint with the sheriff's office. The allegations, according to the attorney general's report, is that the woman, starting in late 2019, experienced harassment by the governor. Later, hugs, kisses, and then a serious allegation in November of 2020 that the governor felt underneath her shirt and felt her breasts. The allegation, the latest in a series against Governor Cuomo, with 11 women coming forward. Allegations the governor has steadfastly denied on several occasions, and today his attorney coming out and calling them false. However, in the attorney general's report, they refer to executive assistant number one as someone to be credible both in demeanor and in the substance of her allegations. They also write, Governor Cuomo denied a number of executive assistant number one's allegations, but we found that his denials lacked persuasiveness, devoid of detail and were inconsistent with many witnesses' observations of behavior toward executive assistant number one and other women in the executive chamber. Cuomo, in a statement, big statement earlier this week, said that never happened when speaking about this woman's allegations. It's yet another series of troubles for the governor, but this one could end up with him in handcuffs if charges are ultimately brought. Shepard Smith here. Thank